If you think about some of the most important companies in the world, we're there behind helping support them to be successful. When I speak to any of the CIOs, their world is not getting simpler. The world is the threats and the opportunities they need to respond. The markets are getting tighter. They need to get the cost out and they need to transform faster. Take the opportunity. If you can get inside the organization to BT, take any role in BT. An hour a day, you can become an expert at anything. Be curious, spend your own personal time, develop yourself, get involved with the people, volunteer your time inside the organization, you can get anywhere. This is CRNet TV, my name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Colin Bannon, who is the Chief Technology Officer at BT Business. A very warm welcome, Colin. Thank you. Colin, you studied science at the Victoria University in Canada. Uh, you started your career at IBM. You worked for big companies like Lucent, like Unisys, and you joined BT in 2005. And you are the CTO of BT Business since 2016. So Colin, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Who are you really? And how did you arrive in this position? Oh, heck, I, I would uh, I'd say that I am an engineer at heart. I mm -hmm. identify as an engineer, but I would say as a customer engineer, focusing mm -hmm. not just on the internal architecture of what we do, but trying to make sure that we are relevant for our customers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's the thing that keeps me up at night. And uh, what makes me tick and my background uh, really is I've worked my way up through the ranks mm -hmm. in, in all, uh, all the way through BT in many different roles. In fact, when I first came in to BT, my first customer was the CTO okay. uh, of BT. And then we roll the, uh, the, the film forward a number of years. Mm -hmm. And now I'm the CTO for BT Business, and, and, and frankly, I think I have one of the coolest jobs in the world. <laughs> okay, super. So, BT Business yep. is where we are today. Yes. Headquarters in London. Mm -hmm. So, tell us a little bit. BT, of course, is a household name. What is it that BT Business does, and what is it that it does really, really well? Yeah, so if you think about uh, what BT Business is, it is a managed network services organization mm -hmm. business. It's a telco. Yep. BT Business is the division within BT PLC that mm -hmm. focuses on uh, small to medium business, wholesale, Soho, uh, um, indirect channels mm -hmm. as well, uh, uh, government in the UK, health, retail, and also global multinationals. Yep. And within those global multinationals, you'll find things like banking and insurance and automotive and transport. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, if you think about some of the most important companies in the world, we're there behind helping support them to be successful with their customers mm -hmm. as well. And uh, our services cross built on the best network. Mm -hmm. On top of that is security, outsourcing, uh, voice and digital work solutions, LAN data center, wide area networks, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and various other industry-based solutions, whether they be IoT or private 5G, 5G services in the UK, uh, and, and moving forward as well, other services like quantum security or 
sustainability. There's mm -hmm. other services that we're doing, and we're designing those in the heart of what we do and the products that we build. Okay. One of the slogans of BT is, we connect for good. Yes. What does that mean? So I think to me, and, and I think it's personal for everyone, um, this is about uh, enabling our customers to unlock their potential, both the potential of their employees mm -hmm. and also the potential of their services to their customers to ensure that we give them the best possible service, the best possible technology, and help them when they're with us and mm -hmm. how we're serving them. We bring them along and transform them into the future so that when they're with BT, they're really connecting for good and that we're delivering the best possible service and the best possible experience and business agility. Yeah. Colin, I want to talk to, with you about how we can make sure that BT is a future-proof organization sure. and how you help your clients to be future-proof. Yeah. Because we live in, in, in quite special times, right? Yeah. I mean, there's economic instability, global political instability, yeah. and so on and so on. What do you consider are the main challenges that telco companies and, and your clients are faced with today? Yeah, so I think uh, number one is complexity, Okay. right? So if, if I was to look at an average customer today, um, We'll start with that first one, complexity. It, they are, the pace of transformation, the pace of technology evolution is going ever faster. Yeah. But they're still sitting on a very large technology debt pile. Mm -hmm. And uh, the complexity of moving to cloud, but being multi-cloud and also hybrid cloud, yeah. with a greater sophisticated set of threats hanging around on the door on the outside, mm -hmm. Uh, makes it quite a challenging um, situation. You know, when I speak to any of the CIOs that we serve, their world is not getting simpler. The world is the threats and the opportunities they need to respond. The markets are getting tighter. They need to get the cost out. Yep. Uh, they need to transform faster. Mm -hmm. And they need to bring uh, evolving users and employee bases who are changing the way they work mm -hmm. along with them. Yep. COVID was a really great example of how people needed to respond quite in an agile way to keep the lights on. And, and I think uh, these are some of the things that we really are focusing on and putting back in um, the DNA of what our next products are and mm -hmm. the services that we're developing and the services that we provide for our customers. Yeah. So complexity, and yeah. you mentioned that as a main challenge for organizations. That means I think that quite a number of organizations we need like to rethink and re-architect a little yeah. bit how our businesses are organized. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, well, I think um, I'll give you an example. For you know, the average customer today mm -hmm. in the network transformation they may still have some of their core golden data sitting on a mainframe, mm -hmm. still in an old database, uh, still in an old data center that they're trying to close down. Yep. In there, they've probably got some middleware that's sitting on top of it. Sitting in front of that, uh, they may have some third-party services that they've tried to, partnerships are really important these days, mm -hmm. and they're growing partnerships and they need to bring in lots of outside people or outside partners to build this app. And then, they will also, and that could be on private cloud. And then on the front, they might have a modern microservices, Kubernetes, you know, developed front end mm -hmm. for their B2C transactions or their B2B transactions. Now, in the old days, this was a monolithic app. And when they would get in trouble, the developer would probably know the name of the top of the rack switch 
and they could call up the network department that night. You know, they do a software push on a Saturday night. They kind of think they're getting in trouble on a Sunday morning. They could call up the network department and say, hey, it's this name of this, this top of the rack switch. Can you start counting the packets in and counting the packets out? Today, what we've done with applications, businesses, mm -hmm. to take advantage of the cloud and things have evolved, they've exploded that app. And that mm -hmm. app is spread all over, all over the, uh, the web with multiple providers. And so the reality is the wide area network we're seeing today is performing the job of what the data center LAN used to be. Mm -hmm. and remember the data center LAN was infinite capacity, great visibility, great micro segmentation and security, and great control. Yep. The wide area network doesn't necessarily give that. And as developers are developing hybrid solutions, that level of you know, really idiosyncratic flows are going on, it's making it more complex. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing is a convergence of things like organizationally, what do people need to change? I think that you have sort of three towers going on in organizations right now. What, we'll, we'll start with security and networking mm -hmm. and applications. I think today you've got individual towers you know, sort of DevOps and NetOps and SecOps. Mm -hmm. I think we need to move and what we're seeing, the, the successful customers are moving to a, a sort of a NetSec DevOps okay. type operational model mm -hmm. where you've got a convergence in a hybrid of skills. But also in terms of how people build business cases as well, you know, you, you used to have a tower for networks, a tower for infrastructure, and a tower for your applications mm -hmm. as well. And every time you had a procurement manager in each of those areas, they'd, they'd make a saving in that area, and then they'd high-five, high you know, they've smashed it. But what they've really often done is move the pain bubble to the other two towers. And I think as things start to converge, mm -hmm. and things like egress costs for cloud, and you know, people are moving to cloud, and then they get bill shock in terms of what the operational costs are. So they've made one saving, and then they're swapping it out for a different type of cost, the, the operational cost. That is a model where I think also, not just operationally, that sort of NetSec DevOps type function where you've got more hybrid skills, mm -hmm. but commercially, those three towers, how finance organizations within the big global multinationals and businesses really need to start thinking about it as a single unified field model, mm -hmm. right? And that way, because then we start to think about that, it's like, well, hey, maybe this network could take 20% off your application operational costs if you started thinking about doing it as a business case in one whole world. But however, that's going to take quite a cultural change I can imagine. and a maturity <laughs> change going yep. on within all of the organizations where you used to have dedicated procurement departments that would never talk to each other yep. in different stovepipes, and we need to break those stovepipes down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're typically different silos. So, yeah. so how do companies do that? How do they make sure that the network people, the security people, and yeah. the application people really start working together? Yeah, well, I, I think we're going to see a real evolution over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, if you just look at the startups right now, I s sort of see three buckets that we're seeing. There is one group of sort of cost optimization where for thinking about cloud for a moment, taking this as an example, one group of startups that are essentially cost arbitration. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to save 
just the, under the big umbrella of FinOps. You know, you've probably, you know, people talk about FinOps more. Yeah. This is going to evolve over the next couple of years uh, to my point of those stovepipe towers converging. And I think uh, this is an area for people to think about and invest time in mm -hmm. looking in the market of what FinOps tools there are. And if I was to sort of landscape them, the first group is kind of cost arbitrage, where they are taking existing pre-booked compute cycles mm -hmm. that other companies don't need and having a secondary market for it. Now, this is nothing new. Uh, you know, we've had other secondary markets before where mm -hmm. you have these uh, uh, brokerage services uh, you know, and that will have its place, and that's okay. The second group of startups will be um, uh, well, basically like everybody's mother or grandmother. Basically, if you've left that light on on the house, mm -hmm. telling you to turn it off or turn the water off, stop the leaky tap, so that your utility bills at the end of the month, those cloud providers, the egress costs aren't inflated. Mm -hmm. So there's a set of startups out there that are looking at workloads to optimize overlogging, yeah, because if you're taking too much data and you're not doing anything with that data, yep. you're just throwing money out the window. Mm -hmm. um, uh, oversizing up front um, in terms of your architecture, but also looking at processes that are running overnight that are very chatty out to the internet or to the other services mm -hmm. without it actually get attracting customer revenue and turning those services down. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have flows. And the final one is a really, really interesting area, and it's something that we're investing personally for the work that we're doing on our new global fabric uh, mm -hmm. services, is the concept of that holistic TCO. Thinking about being more informed, because network services companies really have not spent the time to understand the applications. And this is about what, how you build a, a, a holistic TCO combined one mm -hmm. on, if we do this in the network, the network up until this point has been a cost center. And telcos traditionally have struggled on the concept of value. Now, I think personally, and of course I would, um, we've provided a, a tremendous amount of value. Mm -hmm. If you look at um, the consumer networks in the UK during COVID, we kept the UK going, uh, going yep. during COVID. The network just worked. Everybody went home. Everybody left all the offices of London and they all went home and they kept on working. And that was the investment of the, of the, that we had made previously in our networks, you know, to be able to connect for good. Now, now, what we need to do with the business cases now is to be able to say this network in the business sense is not just a cost center. It is actually a transformational tool to actually transform your other cost centers within the business. And mm -hmm. that is a different sale. Yep. That is a different conversation that we need to have. And it's an, it's an elevated conversation where it's actually kind of, you know, we realize, and I think people are becoming more nuanced mm -hmm. than if, you know, if you go a few years back, it was just cloud first. Now yep. we're seeing customers a lot more nuanced. And, you know, this argument between private cloud and public cloud our view is let the app decide because okay. apps have a propensity. They, 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 the apps are best in certain areas, mm -hmm. not just latency, but the way they behave, how chatty they are. Sometimes it's an all-you-can-eat model rather than a per-bit charge model. Mm -hmm. and, and so there are commercial models. So we're seeing customers becoming a lot more nuanced about where they're placing workloads. And mm -hmm. the truth is workloads are going to be a lot more distributed 
based on the use case yep. and also the commercials. And therefore, having a model where you can take um, a business case with the network and combine it with some of the infrastructure transformation, but really also use that to transform and make a case in the application will be the route that we'll be going. Yep. And it's very exciting time. I can imagine. Are there a lot of cost savings to be done? Oh, immense, immense. I, I mean, <coughs> excuse me, one of the bad analogies that I use, but today what you have is lots of individual apps that often are, um, you know, if you think about it, it's like a fistful of spaghetti mm -hmm. and products for ourselves. And where um, th there is duplication of infrastructure mm -hmm. and services and monitoring and cost within organizations today. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, to me, the analogy is like, today it's like a bunch of spaghetti. Now, what we're trying to do is churn networks into more of networks as a service and as, as a platform, network as a platform. Mm -hmm. So take those groups of spaghetti that essentially add no value to each other mm -hmm. and everybody's replicating and, and, it, and they're spending money on doing things that they could be differentiating their products on duplicating stuff that other people have done. And we take that spaghetti and turn it sideways and turn it into layers of lasagna. Mm -hmm. So it's the, you know, from spaghetti to lasagna, it's the layers of the platform where you can, they're pre-built and you can consume them and they're transformational and they deal with that complexity. Really only service providers, I would argue uh, a service provider, particularly BT, that with the scale that we've got globally as well and the scale that we have in the UK is we're kind of a hyperscaler ourselves, mm -hmm. but for networks. Okay. And it's very, very capital intensive mm -hmm. to build resilience and diversity into your connections to cloud. And I would argue that um, there's a real opportunity for companies to take advantage of massive hyperscale investments and then glean the benefits without having to try to compete and do that themselves each time. Yeah. You know, innovate on the top with their applications, but don't necessarily have to build and, and spend that amount of capex that we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, this is our core business. Yeah. Question is, do enterprises need to be building service provider networks? And I would argue that it's probably not the case. Mm -hmm. So that would be some of the advice that I'd have. Okay, super. Let's talk a, a bit about multi-cloud, hybrid yep. cloud, a little bit more, because I have the feeling that cloud had big, big problems of giving everybody the flexibility and being yep. very cost-effective and so on. But uh, companies are now realizing that things have become more complex yep. because of um, multi-cloud providers, because of uh, hybrid cloud and so on and so on. What is your vision on that? Has, has cloud already, um, has cloud really delivered on its promise? Or do we have, or how do we um, manage the complexity of cloud today? Well, um, first of all, I, I think it's for each, each company mm -hmm. to determine to do a PIR on the investments that they've already made in cloud mm -hmm. and look at the, the return on the investments. I think we all agree that some of the first forays into cloud in the long term did not necessarily pay back. However, cloud is absolutely brilliant for many, many things, not only as integrated de development platforms mm -hmm. with a lot of value added services, but that liquidity, that flexibility to be able to spin up services where 
you have infinite capacity is a tremendous opportunity and infinite footprint around the world as well uh, is, is a super benefit. So I'm super fan of cloud. cloud. Mm -hmm. However, again, um, it's horses for courses. You need to pick your right location. And, and I think the one thing that w we collectively as an industry probably haven't done a, a great job is the maturity of the skill set around uh, picking, uh, landscaping that application and understanding where it is best. Mm -hmm. yeah? um, because a dogmatic sort of, uh, uh, the answer is cloud first for everything. Mm -hmm. I think when you run the numbers, you'll find that, well, there's regulatory issues, there's sovereignty issues, security, there's security issues, yeah. you know, that, that business case, if you have to rip out the cloud security wrap and put your own security wrap in, then that business case gets weaker and weaker and weaker mm -hmm. from that side. And, um, you know, I see all blends. Mm -hmm. It is very interesting when we've done analysis, different industries have quite different maturity levels yep. of cloud uh, between multi-cloud, hybrid cloud, all-in cloud. Mm -hmm. None of them are at 100%. Um, and uh, I would say that um, that it is a you know it, it is an evolving learning area, and I think the the, the multi cloud complexity issue is uh, you see right now cloud providers making forays into trying to make it easier to consume and network to them. Another really interesting aspect that we're seeing with the cloud providers is there's a maturity curve that they're going through where they start to flatten out mm -hmm. uh, on the internet side, and they get to a certain point on their their internet count uh, how customers consume, and then uh, they realize that actually you, you need to move to a dedicated connection, mm -hmm. one that is deterministic, one that has an end-to-end -end SLA, that then it would continue to grow. And that's some of the numbers that they're seeing. And uh, that was really fascinating to us because that puts the network quite relevant. The beauty of the internet is you have... Um, millions of business customers, wherever they are in the world, they can network and route to get to the gateways, the yep. landing zones of the clouds on the internet. The downside is they will pay for that. They pay for every bit of data that they put. It's kind of like somebody told me an analogy. It's there sometimes um, it's the world's worst nightclub, right? <laughs> it's free to get in, but you have to pay to get it back out, right? <laughs> so um, the, the, what we're having there is a model where um, it is brilliant. However, it gets to a certain maturity level where they're wanting more and they want an end-to-end -end SLA where they start moving their really important workloads. Mm -hmm. And they start to treat this as a fabric. Because remember that analogy I talked earlier about, you know, the WAN is the data center LAN now. And, mm -hmm. and it needs to have micro-segmentation, great visibility, full-stack observability, security, and, and an SLA around that. And uh, you know, moving to a, a dedicated model, the problem that the hyperscalers have is that instead of a million locations, they're only like 120 mm -hmm. locations around the world. And the problem that most customers have is that not, their networks aren't in those locations. And this is where the concept of a, a cloud fabric or a, you know, uh, a global fabric starts to come into play. Mm -hmm. And that's been a lot around the thinking that we've put into our next network investment. Yeah. So Colin, um, you mentioned global fabric. Yeah. 
as being one of the new services that you're uh, launching here within BT and BT Business. How, uh, how would you summarize what exactly Global Fabric stands for? Right. Yeah, well, no, great question. Uh, Global Fabric is one of our big bets. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it is one of the things that we think will make BT relevant to our customers' needs as we go forward into the future. Mm -hmm. In a nutshell, it is there we are creating the world's largest and best interconnection fabric mm -hmm. for cloud and multi-cloud. Now, uh, as we talked before, there's challenges around the complexity. This is about removing the friction of moving workloads into the cloud mm -hmm. and distributed workloads and securing them and creating a network that is the, uh, has the lowest energy use out there in the market right now. Mm -hmm. um, we are looking at, compared to our existing network to achieve these things, 76% less electricity than the previous one. Well. And it is a micro-segmented network. We've abstracted, you know, if we go into the technical stuff, we mm -hmm. have created a multi-service edge so we can serve internet, but we can also still serve those who need critical things like IVPN and MPLS mm -hmm. and also Ethernet. We don't care now. We can serve all of them in this core. And we've created this core at the doorstep of the cloud. And then we've created this core and made it highly resilient and highly diverse. Mm -hmm. In each, we will have interconnectivity with multiple providers in multiple locations so people can trust in every availability zone around the world for the big hyperscalers. Mm -hmm. And this is a superhighway for the cloud that will provide a deterministic SLAs end-to-end -end so people can trust that when they connect the cloud that that journey and their end-user experience and their applications actually achieved. But not only that, we're starting to address these things like sovereignty. Mm -hmm. This is really, this network can now start to take into account, you know, this concept of data sovereignty is about, you know, is that hard drive in the country of where you use? Is yep. that cloud instance a sovereign cloud? Well, what we're starting to see is that's, that's about data at rest. What we're starting to see is um, the regulators to look at data in motion. Okay. So can we actually geofence traffic? You know, there's this concept of deglobalization, uh, uh, de or there's also mm -hmm. there's a lot of strife. You know, there's a lot of um, geopolitical challenges out there as well. Yep. This network allows you to take business intent and bring it into the network. And the network is clever enough to understand those business intents, to treat your data that is in motion. Does it need to stay in that country? Does it need to avoid that country? Does it need to be um, lowest cost? Or does it need to be the fastest route? Now, all of those things we can unlock with the data now where we have abstraction. And uh, it also, uh, I would say, is it is now moved into the cloud world where it has a digital front end. Mm -hmm. So there's what, you, you know, if you're developing apps, we've got modern microservices apps, where your apps can inter interact with the network to take inventory out to understand greater context. Mm -hmm. Or there's new portals that have sort of um, cloud-like interfaces. So it makes it really easy to interact, it really visual, and, it, and the network understands the applications as well. And when you make the choice, you can design things that really unlock value for the customers. And then, of course, there's the brilliant managed services for the very large uh, customers, the CPS customers, as we call them, or, or the in, in multinationals. We allow them to do the sort of 
white glove treatment to um, uh, take care of every need that they have yeah. on behalf of them, almost as, a, as an additional part of their business. This network is going to transform how people will consume cloud. Um, the hyperscalers themselves are really excited. Some people say, oh, you know, are the hyperscalers a threat? In this case, we're as one. Okay. Yeah, we're building together. Mm -hmm. We're building like Fury right now, and it's an incredible, exciting period. So, Colin, could you give me maybe one or two examples of clients yeah. that you work with? I mean, you work with big international clients where they have really going, uh, gone through replatforming their, their, their IT infrastructure and systems. Yeah, sure. Um, we have uh, one... Uh, global international mining company that mm -hmm. was one of our pilot customers. Obviously, we've launched now. Mm -hmm. uh, we're fresh out of the market with our new product, uh, our new uh, set of products that we've got here. And um, uh, they uh, had a, a significant set of requirements around complexity and location, mm -hmm. and also the fact that they were moving more workloads to the cloud. We've also got a, 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 a banking client an automotive manufacturing client, um, and also what's turned out to be uh, uh, platform builders themselves, other companies who build platforms themselves, particularly in the security area. Mm -hmm. uh, real interest in partnering and building platforms together where security is embedded with the network. And, and that's unlocking brilliant new opportunities for transformation with our customers as well. They have digital interfaces that are interactive with ours. You're dealing with more partnerships and marketplaces, and you're dealing with customers who are wanting to have almost not a human touching this process all the way through. One of the things that we wanted to do with this new network and the, the new platforms around it is to make it have the same liquidity and agility that uh, our customers benefited from the data center automation mm -hmm. that they, they ha they've had for years, where they could spin up additional compute against requirements, or spin up more memory, or make changes on the security within minutes, yep. not weeks. And that was one of the biggest challenges that we wanted to do with the network, is to make network and secure networking and connections to cloud to have a cloud-like experience as well. And, 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 and we're moving forward to that and having some brilliant feedback. And I think the evidence of these customers signing up to this mm -hmm. and going on this journey and um, helping co-create with us uh, is, is, is great testament to their vision and, and has been brilliant feedback for us as we build. Okay. So what would you, I mean, um, CIO network community for CIOs, yeah. CTOs, and, and so on. What would your advice be to, uh, to the CIOs and the CTOs out there that are looking to, to, to re-architect um, their, uh, their, their systems, what is it really that they have to take care of? Well, <clears throat> the first bit of advice I'd have would be, um, it feels like we're in a world today that is more hype. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I suspect, just like myself over the years, you're trying to search for truth. You're trying to search for the answer. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that most vendors, software vendors and hardware vendors uh, and their marketing teams, everybody's version of the truth that is put out there right now is related to their P&L. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and now more than ever, it feels polarized. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it's the geopolitical climate <laughs> or, or what, but the marketing techniques of or what it is, <coughs> pardon me. And I, I suspect many of the conversations I have with customers is they're trying to search their way through because the jury is not out on some of these areas. Is, mm-hmm. it, is it sassy? Is it SD-WAN? Is it both? Um, what's the blend between cloud and private? Um, what other technologies around security? And um, it is complex. So my first advice would be to find, uh, to, you know, around the education on that is um, find trusted advisors mm-hmm. and test. And, and, and probably look at proof of value rather than proof of concept. The people who've looked at proof of value when they've taken a little bit, you know, the old saying is sort of measure twice and cut once you know, spend that time on the front end to learn uh, the positioning. And that way there's a lot less regretted on, on the back end. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I would also say is those that continue to procure and think about stovepipe mentality previously, that's not going to really deliver the right outcomes, in, in my humble opinion. Yep. And the ones who are starting to think of the big picture and think of it as a single architecture, rather than a set of fiefdoms mm-hmm. with each of them with their own sub P&Ls. If you start to think about the big, what is best for that company end to end, then you start to unlock um, better outcomes. Yep. Yeah. So those are a couple of things that, uh, uh, that I could put forward to, okay. to those out there who are listening. <laughs> so Colin, you're the CTO of BT Business and BT Business is quite a big business, right? Yeah. It's uh, almost uh, around 9 billion pounds of revenue. What is it that you really do as a CTO? What is fundamentally your role in the organization? Oh, that's um, so probably three things. Okay. Okay. So uh, the first part is spending time with customers, mm-hmm. and it's about going on a journey. We don't necessarily just sell product; mm-hmm. we sell solutions, and that is a journey that we go on together with the customers. Yep. Every customer has their own set of discrete requirements Mm -hmm. that require a conversation on how we solution something for them. That is built on base components that are reusable so they get the economies of scales, but there will always be something where we need to go on a journey and they need help with their board and they need help with understanding what the requirements are and all the threats around what's going on in the industry, what's happening in their own environment, what threats there are, what opportunities there are. And, you know, try to lift it up out of just a, I want this and this, I'd rather say I'd like an outcome Mm -hmm. and go for those outcomes. So that's the first one. And then occasionally I'll get my ass kicked by the customer and get some really good (laughs) feedback on those sort of conversations. And and I bring that back in Mm -hmm. to the the central area, um, to the product team. Mm -hmm. And that's the second tenant of my role, which is... And it's the thing that keeps me up at night the most is how do we stay relevant for mm-hmm. our customers and how, how do we chart and, and be super helpful and super appropriate for that, for mm-hmm. ju- not just now, but for the next five to 10 years yep. in terms of the investments that make. And, and how, are we, how are we helping them connect and thrive uh, from that side? So that feedback loop starts to happen and then I help advise and work with the leadership team of what we're, you know, the platform approach 
of developing our products and mm -hmm. creating really exciting world-beating products on that side with the product product owners. Yep. And then there's another group is when things go wrong over here with the service organization. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, if you've been involved in designing something and a customer gets into trouble, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's the service provider, it doesn't necessarily mean it's BT, mm -hmm. the network is the, the, the one of the greatest sensors, uh, you know, one of the greatest data collection tools there are. Mm -hmm. and, and that function when things go wrong is uh, getting involved with customers and helping them get out of trouble. When things do break, yep. um, the lessons, so that's another feedback loop in there. Because what we want to do uh, as BT is not just prove that it isn't the network's fault or mm -hmm. prove that it's not the security, you know, when something goes wrong, it's uh, you know, reducing the mean time to network innocence, as some people say. It's about being a consultative partner mm -hmm. and using the power of the network and the data that we have yep. to lean in and help out that application owner that's got into trouble or yep. that security department that has an ongoing threat is how do we take all the best of BT and the resources we have because we have that relationship and lean in and do more. Yep. And that function, um, paradoxically, I find I learn more when things go wrong with customers mm -hmm. um, in their own environment on how we can actually make our products even better for those customers and more relevant. Okay. Um, so those are some of the sort of the key tenants, creating the vision, communicating the vision, and bringing and evolving our own technology, working with our partners, and, and creating the roadmaps for the future is some of the key functions okay. in this role. So how is your, I mean, I can imagine that you have a number of teams that work with you. Mm -hmm. how, how have you organized your, your CTO teams, let's call them, and, uh, and, and how do you... How, and, and let's maybe also talk a little bit about your management style. How do you organize it and how do you manage your teams? Sure. Well, um, it is an interesting challenge. Uh, you know, always, I'm sure many people who come onto this program will say, always employ smarter people than you are, right? Mm -hmm. and, and their success is your success mm -hmm. from that side. My team um, is focused around a set of domains. Mm -hmm. Technology domains is the first area. So whether it be networks, customer customer networks, mm -hmm. um, mobility, um, uh, security, all the different domains, various areas of clouds and various areas of technologies. Mm -hmm. So you have these domain leaders. All of them are field CTOs as well. All of them are sort of player managers who will spend time with customers because, frankly, uh, we found that having a team that does architecture, that the customer architecture, that doesn't talk to customers, doesn't really deliver very good outcomes. Yeah. So we wear a, a number of hats uh, in the team. So you'll have the expert for that particular area and may have um, you know, a team underneath for, from that side. You, they're all field CTOs is what we call them. So they're in the field, spending time with customers, mm -hmm. working on applying and evolving that and being the thought leaders for that particular domain area. And then we split them out also to have regional leadership functions or no. vertical leadership functions. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, my team, very likely the leadership part of the team will have at least three hats. Yeah, whether they're owning a domain, a region, a vertical, 
uh, or also performing yep. that uh, field CTO function. So you have teams full of clever people, lots of engineers, I can imagine. Yep. Yep. How easy is it for you nowadays to attract the right people and, and make sure. sure that you get top talent in your teams? Yeah, I think, um, you know, telcos, service providers deal with some of the greatest complexity of the world. Mm -hmm. And it, you do need to attract a person uh, uh, who is interested in new challenges every day because we're not building one network and maintaining one network. No. Uh, and you build for the future. We're amazing. building for the future, yeah. yeah. But we're building 100 networks each year, right? You know, 100 different customer networks we're mm -hmm. building as well as a global network and yeah. as well as national networks as well. And uh, so um, it's a little different in terms of complexity. Also, some of these networks that we're running with these customers um, have a, a lot of complexity in their environment, a lot of history. Mm -hmm. So the roles in the CTO office, first of all, you know, for me is you go for attitude, mm -hmm. you know, and, and innate intelligence, not necessarily um, what they're doing, uh, what they've necessarily achieved in school, but the, the attitude and willingness to learn and that bright spark and then that sort of ability to make an intuitive leap mm -hmm. of insight. <clears throat> we have over 10,000 engineers. There's only a handful of them can prove themselves to work their way up through that sort of Darwinian organization mm -hmm. where they are naturally the people in the organization, the go-to person that all the other engineers, when they have something that's trouble yep. or a hard question, they go to that, they defer to that person. They're mm -hmm. natural leaders by not by seniority, but by sheer insight and success. And mm -hmm. what I mean by success is uh, many people can be right some of the time, but there's some hard to capture characteristics where certain individuals are right most of the time. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, I guess, horse betting or something else <laughs> like that. We want the winners, yep. but those winners have certain set of regular characteristics yep. of curiosity, commitment, um, brilliant intellect, and a commitment where they are always learning. Okay, yeah. and these clever people out there, why should they come and work for you here oh. at, what, what's the culture <laughs> that I can expect if they come and work here at BT Business? Well, one is we have brilliant parts of the business. Mm -hmm. You know, opportunity to travel the world, opportunity to have some of the, to do some, to help some of the most meaningful companies in the world that are making, changing truly things for the difference, for the better mm -hmm. in the world. And we're serving them and helping them achieve things. And um, <clears throat> so the opportunity for innovation and working for a brilliant culture that is always learning, always striving to connect for good, is thinking about the community, thinking about the environment, and thinking about uh, making things better and genuinely having a feel that we're, we're trying to change things for the better. Yeah. That's a great culture to be. We have a great leadership team and some great culture in, in each of the areas and great opportunities to learn as well. Mm -hmm. if, you know, if you want to learn how to do networking, how to do <laughs> security, coming and working for BT is a, is a fantastic opportunity to, you know, the world is your oyster. There's so many things that are going on that you could go around the organization and there are so many experienced people 
there are people who I'm fortunate that I still call mentors who have still curious, still bright, and they've got 35 years of experience uh, working on this that you can tap into. So if you're coming into this career, there is this brilliant well of people who just want you to be successful and will give of their experience to be able to learn. And it is a great opportunity for people to build and grow their, their uh, careers in an organization like this. I've seen people come in and rock it to the top. And that's hopefully interesting for those people out there to, to be intrigued to come and have another conversation. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about you, uh, Colin. I mean, um, I mean you, it's, it's a big organization and you lead quite a, quite a, quite a team here. So let's talk a little bit, we talked about management, let's talk a little bit about leadership. Yep. So how would you define your personal leadership style? Mm -hmm. And then as a follow-up question, what do you think people, how is your leadership perceived? What do you think that will say about you when you're not around? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that a role like mine is a great responsibility mm -hmm. because we're securing the nation. We're securing um, hospitals, police, emergency ambulance, mm -hmm. uh, companies that are making life-saving equipment, and we're helping out with international crises. Yeah, it's There's critical a, infrastructure, right? Yeah, it's critical infrastructure, uh, and we're helping companies solve some of the greatest challenges to humankind yep. that we have today. And it is, I take the role incredibly seriously, and, and it's an honor to be in a, a function like this. I'm really quite grateful to have this role, mm -hmm. to tell you the truth. And um, uh, to be there where you genuinely get up in the morning and you feel like you're making a difference, mm -hmm. you're contributing to something like that. And I yep. don't know if there's that many roles out there that you can say that you do that. Yep. Um, so uh, I think that is one. In terms of um, the style, um, running towards the fire, you know, this is a role, you know, where you, if you have the knowledge and you have the capabilities and you have the uh, um, trust of your organization, then, you know, more than ever, with the complexity of the world, with the challenges of the world, now's the time to stand up and be counted, mm -hmm. right? And um, this isn't just a job. Right. This is this is a mission that we're doing here. And how do you think people perceive you? What do you think they will say about you when oh, you're not around? Well, uh, I think uh, I think uh, I, I think that uh, you know a, a good servant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, being able to talk about the vision, but also be the biggest cheerleader for everybody in the team, mm -hmm. and being open and approachable. You know, uh, there's a lot of people out there, and like I said before in the interview, you know, it doesn't matter what role you are in the business. If you've mm -hmm. got if you've got the ideas, then you're the most important to me, person to me. Yeah. Are people who are in the count teams and in front of the customers? Are people who are in the front um, of our service organizations? Mm -hmm. Are teams who are dealing on a day-to-day -day basis? with our customers and making their their place easier yep. uh, and better. They're the most important people in the company to me. So Colin, you clearly take your job very serious. Your heart 
you're very driven, hardworking, I can imagine. I mean, you even have possibly sleepless nights thinking about the future of where things are going and so on and so on. A, a huge team, huge organization and responsibility. How do you relax? How do you get back to yourself? What is, what is the, the flip side of the very driven business column? <laughs> um, sure. Um, not only do I try to grow things mm -hmm. and nurture things at work, but uh, when I go home to, to switch off, when I, when I do, is uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a farmer wow. as well. So mm -hmm. I, I do some farming at home. And uh, that is a great contrast. So you know, recommend anyone who's in IT who is a bit stressed on the daytime in the job, go home and get some dirt in, under your fingernails and, and um, you won't regret it. And you've got a, animals, yep. an animal farm? And all yeah, that. horses and, and land and, oh, yeah. and do some breeding. And, and um, uh, I'm going through a learning journey there as well. Okay. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about your personal background. I understand you, you, you grew up in, in, in Canada. Yeah. Your parents were British. Yep. Uh, tell, us, tell us that story in oh, a nutshell. I don't know. I, my folks, my father was an engineer. Mm -hmm. His father was an engineer. Um, Instead. So it's it's genetically well. I, do, I don't know about that, but you know the, the the grandfather was vacuum tubes. My father was mechanics, and now mm. me, I'm probably a screwdriver in a server or something mm -hmm. like that. And um, you know, probably a long line of people who can't leave things well enough alone. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they went from England to Australia. Had myself and my sister. I was raised in Australia. Then they went on a holiday to Canada, like many people f fell in love with Canada and mm. uh, chose Vancouver. So I was incredibly fortunate to uh, uh, spend my earlier years in Vancouver and Canada. And mm -hmm. then uh, I got the wanderlust as well, like many people who are in international business. And I mm -hmm. uh, closed the loop and came back here and spent the rest of my life sending care packages of British food back to Canada <laughs> to my family so they can have that as well. And you feel British or you feel Canadian in the core? I, you know, the, the great thing about being um, uh, that is a humility that the, the, every culture has something mm -hmm. to give. Yep. And if you if you traveled and lived, as, as uh, I'm sure you have as well, um, you you try to immerse yourself wherever you are. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you might say, some of my friends might say, I'm cheering for whichever team is winning. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in the Commonwealth Games, I'm normally like two-thirds disappointed because uh -huh. it's either Canada or Australia is losing and <clears throat> the UK is winning or vice versa. Mm -hmm. To me now, um, I, I, f I feel very European okay. at this point, even though some people still say I have a, an accent. But... Uh, you know, the world is, if there's one thing I've learned, the world is getting a smaller and smaller place. Absolutely. So let's, let's dive, uh, dive a little bit deeper, um, Colin, um, because I think the reason why you have this top job is because you are wired in a certain way, you think in a certain way, and you also have, uh, I can imagine, a number of core values that you live by. Mm -hmm. So you shared with us that you have a son, 14 years yep. old, what are the core values that you're passing on to, uh, to him? So I think uh, <laughs> own it is one of the things he's getting tired of me saying. You know, uh, accountability mm -hmm. is a huge um, point, uh, both in business, uh, being accountable and ethical in your actions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for my son, um, you know, uh, growing up to be a good person 
and being trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Everything else is 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 you know, knowing what good looks like, both in personal relationships and how to treat other people, yeah. and how to treat yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, being good to yourself. Those are sort of the things that I, uh, I, I uh, the sort of values that I, I look for in my son, but also to to be accountable and to be trustworthy and to also to strive to have dreams, to have goals and to strive for them. Yep. Um, but also understand that it's not necessarily always the goal, but also enjoy the journey while you're going on that. Yep. Colin, I'm sure that you, I mean, you're certainly an inspiration for your for your son. Yep. But if you look at, back at your career, who were, maybe give us an example of who was very inspirational for you. Yep. Who was an important mentor? Or who do you look up to? Who did you learn yep. from? Yeah. Uh, well, there's so many. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I, I, I take a lot of inspiration from lots of people, particularly mm-hmm. good storytellers, because I'm still learning how to do that myself, um, and leaders who actually have made a difference. But the one, I'll just pick one that comes to mind that was really close to me over the years. In, in IBM, there was a gentleman called uh, Daryl Frith, mm-hmm. and um, he had done... 30 years in IBM and then had like come back to continue mm-hmm. and he he was a bit of a mentor for me and the breadth of transformation and innovation he was you know like a you know, this was in Canada at the time he was like a cowboy but a IT you know a technology cowboy mm-hmm. and the stories that he would used to tell and and talk about how it'd be on planes with IBM um uh, machines in those planes, these small Cessna planes into uranium mines out in the outback <laughs> or various parts of the world. And the, the, the entrepreneurial, um, there was nothing too hard, you know, uh, at the time. One of the things that he taught me about is, you know, uh, not only the importance of, of creating vision and being able to communicate that vision and trans and execute on that vision mm-hmm. and the delivery side of things on that and all the commercial skills that are associated but also this this uh, this mindset of nothing is impossible right and and the sto- some of the stories that he would tell about you know if you want to put a man on the you know person on the moon you could mm-hmm. you know with essentially the processing power uh, that was less than this watch. And having that historical approach to say, look, engineering um, and, and solutioning, and um, if you can dream it, you can probably do it mm-hmm. from that side. And I've sort of maybe sort of taken that to my heart and this real passion for technology and this real passion for learning, his mentor, you know, so him is an example of, you know, that sort of belief Mm-hmm. That you can that you can do things and that you can make a difference, yep. and then technology can not just be a piece of furniture with lights on, mm-hmm. but it can actually be the transformational power of technology can help people to make a difference yep. in the world. So that's something that you learned from from that mentor at IBM. Yep. Let's look at another maybe learning moment in in, okay. in your career, <laughs> and uh, and I think we can learn. When we do great things and when we have success, yeah. but sometimes we learn even more when we when yeah. we have failures. Yeah. And we all have them. I mean, uh, and, and so would you care to share with us what was maybe one of your most brilliant failures in your long career 
And what did you learn from it? Yeah, I, I, I would say that uh, I had a, a few years back, I would say this was a, this was a bank at the time. Mm -hmm. And this bank had, had decided to do a, a full monolithic transformation, mm -hmm. lift and shift. And this financial services company uh, got into real, real trouble. <laughs> and uh, uh, we were providing a lot of services at the time. And um, I would say that our failure, learnings from that side was, we didn't actually cause the trouble they would have, but the impact, the emotional impact of uh, pensioners not being able to pick up the check at the end of the week, people who had bought a house and they couldn't get their mortgage, yep. people who weren't getting their pay, people's, people's um, bank accounts being in other people's bank accounts, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and where was it uh, for us is that particular example was we leaned in and helped. We were actually not the, the root cause, but the failure for me was our ability of being set up to say, it's not the network's fault. Mm -hmm. And that was the case where, you know, you read it on the press every day, people were being genuinely affected. You couldn't help as a human not to feel for those people. And the learning that I took from that failure was, we got, we got there in the end, we helped them. Mm -hmm. But um, that taught me that we need to invest in the ability of BT to be able to have our systems set up to be that consultative service provider as well. Yep. To be much more able to react to crises that are not caused by BT, mm -hmm. but crises within customers. Yep. To have that professional services, to have the systems, to be able to translate the data. You know, networks are brilliant, but you probably only use 4% of that data for insight. And how do you unlock the data quickly yep. in a crisis and be able to respond to that code red? Mm -hmm. That was some of the learnings I'd taken on. And some of the learnings from that particular incident we've been able to apply to really transform how we respond in a crisis for our customers. Okay. So Colin, quite interesting story. Australia, Canada, UK, big companies, IBM, Lucent, BT, a very, very interesting, great career. If you look back on this, uh, all of this, what is it that you are in your career, but also in your personal life, what is it that you're most gr uh, grateful for? Oh, um, uh, you know, my partner uh, mm -hmm. and, and my family and uh, the opportunity to wake up and do something that I love every day and mm -hmm. to learn. So I think those are the, the key things that I'm grateful um, for is to, uh, to uh, you know, not everybody gets to have a happy home life and also have a job that they actually love, yep. you know, and that's, that's quite a blessing really from that side. I can imagine. So Colin, our videos are watched by young, ambitious yeah. uh, professionals that want to follow in your footsteps. Yeah. What is the advice that you would give to them? My advice would be take the opportunity. If you can get inside the organization to BT, take any role in BT. You can be anything you want. You can get to the CTO, simple things. I do it today still. An hour a day, you can become an expert in anything. Be curious, 
spend your own personal time, develop yourself, get involved with the people, and volunteer your time inside the organization, you can get anywhere. It's super, super way to do it, and I still do it today. Okay. And on that note, Colin, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Thank you.